You're listening to the Covenant original series, The Silent Roar. It's a scary idea that Christ would say he doesn't know you on Judgment Day, yet Scripture says this exact thing can happen. Today is probably what I would call the culmination of not only this series, but like the last three months. And I'm going to be really honest with you. This is probably, I don't want to overstate this, but I think this is probably one of the most important teachings, uh, preachings, talks that I've, I've ever given. i be really honest with you. Um, I think it, it has the potential to be one of the most challenging things that you've heard. And that's not because of my style of speaking or my communication or whatever. It's just God's word. And this is really challenging. And the topic for today is this. Uh, you can think you're a Christian and not actually be a Christian. So right off the bat, we know it's kind of controversial to us. Um, and my point is never to be controversial. My point is to get you to a point where you know Jesus. That is the goal. The purpose of our church is to seek and save the lost. Amen? And, and if there is a way that's possible for us to think we're good and yet not actually be good, then I think we should discuss it. And if it's something that Jesus discusses, it's something that we should discuss. Yes, do you agree with me? And so I want you to know from the, from the jump off here, I love you and I care about you. And I have been wrestling and working through these things all this week. And God has been really doing a number on me in concerning this area. And so we're going to jump in here. Um, I had some conversations after our last service and like, hey, where's the good, where was the encouraging part? And it's like, no, the encouraging part is that God is good and that he sent Jesus to us. That's, that's the encouraging part. Amen. We know that we have a savior who loves us. Um, the real question is, we're going to, are we going to adhere to the standard that he gives? So hang in there till the end of this. All right. That's all I have to say. We're going to start off in Matthew chapter 7, starting with the words of Jesus. Remember, these are the toughest teachings of Christ. And I would also say that this is probably, in my opinion, one of the, the top of the tough, toughest teachings of Christ. Okay? So let me preface it with that. There is no easy way to go about this. It just is what it is. Jesus says, starting in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Would you read that verse with me again? But the one who what? Does the, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, listen now, listen. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Maybe you're a KJV-er, and you remember the word iniquity. Scripture would say there, you workers of iniquity. The fact of the matter is Jesus teaches that there is going to come a day in judgment where there will be people who will stand before him being judged over sin. There will be people who stand before Jesus and, and they will think that they are good and be shocked and surprised to find that in fact, they never had a relationship with Jesus. And so the question that I'm gonna to continue to ask today is, are you relationally invested or just religiously familiar? Are you religiously familiar with Jesus? 
Or are you relationally invested in Jesus? Here's two things that are worth taking note of. Number one, write this down. Words alone are insufficient to save. According to this passage, we see that there are people who have actually cried out, Lord, Lord, and yet words alone are insufficient to save. Now you might say, well, doesn't that contradict Romans 10 where it says that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? No, it doesn't. I'll tell you why. My question would be, what is the Lord you're calling out to? What is the form of Jesus that you're calling out to? So many of us, as we've talked about before, we want a Jesus who will save us, but not a Jesus who is the Lord over us. We want a Jesus who gets us out of hell and a Jesus who gets us some, some, some scratch in the bank. We want the Jesus who makes sure that we have what we want, but we don't want the Jesus who demands every single aspect of our lives come into adherence to him. And so if we accept this Jesus who gives us what we want, but we don't lay down our our life for this Jesus who wants to be our Lord, then we haven't in all actuality bought into a biblical Jesus. Does this make sense? And so of course we should know that words alone are not sufficient to save us. They're insufficient. How many of us have prayed a prayer when we were a young child, raised our hand, emotionally stirred, maybe even God stirred us, we prayed a prayer and then left that building and lived the exact same way? How many of us? Probably many. How, how many times? I mean, I can't even tell you the amount of times of, of men and women I've spoken with in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s who said, man, when I was 12, I, I prayed a prayer and, and I thought I was good. But nothing changed in my life, but I prayed that prayer and so I was a Christian, right? And that's, that's dicey. Not to say that a child can't, can't be drawn to Christ at a young age. Not to say that a 12-year-old can't. That's not my point at all. My point is you could be 12 or you could be 30, but if you say a bunch of words and nothing changes, then nothing has changed. And Christ is not living in you. The Holy Spirit is not taking residence inside of you. So words alone are insufficient. Number two, another thing to, worth noting here. Works alone are inadequate to save. So words alone are insufficient to save. Works alone are inadequate to save. Ephesians 2, we know know this. By grace you have been saved. Through faith, it's not of works. It's not your own doing. You can't even boast about it. Listen to me, salvation cannot come through works. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many verses you know, how many sword drills, I'm going old school, how many sword drills you've won, how many, how many old DC talk songs you can quote. It does, your works will never be adequate enough to save you. Never, never. And so I have to ask, have we bought into a culture or have we sold out to Jesus? Have we, I, I, my problem is this, I think that a lot of times church culture is good and moral and that it stops there. We have a lot of good people who are moral, who wanna believe the best about each other, love each other, but when it comes down to it, how many of us have surrendered our lives to the Lord? How many of us? I understand this is tough and this is challenging and it's gonna feel like you're underwater for the next 30 minutes. I get that. But there is a breath of air every once in a while, okay? As we walk through this, I promise there is. The question is this. If words alone are insufficient and if works alone are inadequate, how can I know that I'm a Christian? How is somebody saved? How is somebody How does that even take place? How can I know? Well, Jesus answers us. Throw up uh, verse 21 and 22 again, if you could. Look at what Jesus says here. 
Not everyone who, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But read this. What does it say? But the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what's, what's the key here? The key is doing the will of God the Father. Okay, great. Yes, now. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Like, that's a pretty important component. Once again, I talk, about this, I talk about this often, but this is why it's so important to read Scripture in its proper context, to not just pull out a verse and say, this is my life verse, it means this. No, it doesn't mean that. It means something else. Read it in context, right? Um, this passage of Scripture is actually a part of a, 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 a larger narrative. It's, it's actually a part of a sermon that Jesus is teaching that he begins all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, uh, famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is towards the conclusion where Jesus is really leading in. But oddly enough, Jesus actually starts out with describing what the will of his Father is for his children what the will of God is for our lives. What are we to look like as disciples and followers of Christ? So if we want to know that we are in God's will and doing God's will, then we should start at the beginning of his sermon where he outlines what that looks like. So that's what I wanna do. Jump over to Matthew chapter five, and uh, you can either look on screen or open up your, open up your Bible app there. If you're listening on podcasts or watching, uh, don't do it if you're driving, that's for sure. Just kind of listen in. But in Matthew chapter 5, we read this. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain, and then he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what's the next word? Blessed. Turn to your neighbor nice and loud and just say, blessed. Just nice and loud, just say, blessed. Look at your other neighbor and say, blessed. It's just a good word to say, right? This word actually comes from some ancient Greek literature uh, literature attributed, and it's attributed to gods, lowercase g. They, it, it's the word makarios, and I know I'm pronouncing that incorrect. Um, but it's this understanding that you are pulled away from this world. You are like godlike in a way where you're not experiencing things in the same way. There's this salvation-y type of aspect to it. And so it's interesting that Jesus uses this word makarios, because he says this starting in verse three, and this just reads like a list, okay? He says this in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You've heard this, right? Yes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in where? In heaven. Let me just say that again. Your reward is great where? In heaven. In heaven, not on this earth. In heaven, someday in heaven. I want you to know if you're writing things down, write this down. Our salvation is proven by our repentance, obedience, and endurance. Our salvation is proven by our repentance, obedience, and endurance. So the question that you and I need to apply to our hearts as we examine our lives today, which I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to examine your life. Christian, I'm asking you to examine your heart. 
I don't care how many youth conferences you've been to. I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care that he's a pastor. I don't care that you went walk the aisle. I am asking every single man, woman, boy, and girl to examine our hearts before Christ today. Okay? just want to kind of set the tone a little bit. That's what we're doing. And I, and, I, and I want us to ask, have I simply converted to a culture or have I surrendered to a master? What does converting to a culture look like? It means this. If my words and my actions are both inadequate and insufficient to save me, it is actually possible that I could buy into a church. I could go to a church. I could volunteer and serve at a church. I could even help in the nursery at a church, changing diapers for Jesus. Wow. I could even do that. I could even give money and time. I could read my Bible and even pray. I could even show up to help at a, at a cleanup, at a Four Grove City event. I could have even coupled that up with, I could have even prayed a prayer. And yet there's still a possibility that I could stand before Jesus and have him say, I never knew you. How is that possible? It's only possible because I can't do anything to save myself. It's only the Holy Spirit. And so as we read down through this list, you're going to begin to quickly see that these aren't things I can do. I can't do these things. Authentically, I can't do them. It's only the working of the Holy Spirit that can do them in me. Number one, number one. So the question, by the way, is are these things happening in your life progressively more and more? Okay, number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Question, am I correctly postured? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. My question is, am I correctly postured? Meaning, am I in a posture of complete and utter humility before God? That is to say, do I recognize that I, there is absolutely nothing good in me? Absolutely nothing good in me. Now, before we start to justify things, let me just take it a step further. It, it, it's not that I sometimes do good and sometimes do bad. It's that I am, in, I am completely incapable and, and astoundingly inept to do anything good ever. <laughs> it's that even on my best day, I cannot do good things. It's not that I sometimes lie. It's that I am a liar. It's not that I sometimes wrestle with the way I see people. It's that I am an adulterer. It's not that, oh, I ate a little too much. It's that I am at my core a glutton. Do you see the difference? We have to own our sin. Being poor in spirit is somebody who has owned their sin and seen themselves for who they actually are. 100% completely and utterly depraved. There is nothing good inside of me. Furthermore, if there is anything good that is done through me, it is a complete working of the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with me. It is God working through me and using me. It's not that I sometimes sin. It's that at my center, I am a sinner incapable of doing anything but sin. That should posture me different. That should change the way I interact before God, how I come before him, and how I interact with other people. I should be postured low and humble, knowing that apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from Jesus Christ, I can accomplish nothing. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. Question, when is the last time that I was broken? Let me ask you, when's the last time you were broken over your sin? Now, this, is kind of, this starts to go kind of hard in the paint here. 
It really does. When is the last time that you were broken? Meaning this, am I completely and utterly broken and repentant over the sin in my life? Listen, recognizing that there's sin in your life is not enough. Being sorry over sin in your life is not enough. Jesus is conveying here that there must be a sense of loss when it comes to the sin in our life. Why? Because sin separates us from God. That's why God hates sin. It is the exact opposite of his nature. God hates sin, but let's be honest, we tolerate it at different levels, at different stages. God hates sin, but we tolerate it. In fact, we flirt with it. We have fun with it. We justify it. We say it's okay in certain scenarios. It's never an okay thing. It's never okay. There's never a point in time where God says, okay, I'll let that one slide because that was pretty funny. That doesn't happen because God hates sin because it separates him from us. Sin is the reason God had to murder his own son. It's not funny to him. It's not a laughing matter. And it should break our hearts and cause us to mourn. I lost my grandmother, one of my grandmothers, when I was in sixth grade. And I remember our family going through this period of mourning. You ever been there before? Maybe you've lost a loved one that you're very close to. I know some of you have lost children, which is unbearable, I can imagine. I can't imagine. But we go through a period where we're mourning. And I don't know if you've ever been through a period of mourning. But if you do, you understand what I'm talking about, right? It's like this heavy, thick weight that just rests on the center of your chest. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. There should be a desperation, a total brokenness over the sin in my life. Three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Question, am I truly meek? Now, meek doesn't mean timid in this sense, right? Um, that's not what meek is, is meaning. Uh, it, it actually means this. Am I completely yielded before God? Am, am I yielded before God? Have I completely given over every hope, every desire, every dream, every aspiration as a sacrifice to God's plan, as a sacrifice to God's agenda? And here's what's funny. It sounds so spiritual for us to say this. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, even if I don't want to do it. That's not meekness, that's actually pride. Why? Because you just told me that you said that. We do that all the time, don't we? You know, God called me to do that, and you know, I was like, I don't wanna do that, but you know, praise God, I gave in and I did it and got on. What? That's pride. See, it's not that God calls us to do things and then we don't wanna do them and then, we, and then we do them anyway, and then in the end, we're like, okay, I see what you're doing there, big guy. That's not what it is. It's that my desires actually align to the desires of God. And see, I can't do, here's the thing, I can't do that. I can't fake that. I can't. Only the Holy Spirit can authentically do that inside of me. And so if I see my desires here and God's desires here, how do I fake that? How do I cross that gap? Like, because you can fool people, that's fine, but you can't authentically fool yourself. You can't, you see, do you get what I'm saying here? You can't do that authentically. It's only the Holy Spirit. 
It's only the Holy Spirit that can align my desires with God's desires. And in fact, I would say this, how can I even make decisions on my life without God first informing me of what my life is to entail? How can I decide who I'm going to date and marry until I go before God and say, God, who would you have me date? Who would you have me marry? Who would you have me spend? See, we expect God to get into our plans. We expect God to get in line with us. Well, of course he does because he wants us happy and he wants us this. And of course he wants us this. No, no, no. Did you ever think that your life is not about you? Did you ever think that your life is not about now? God created you. You did not create God. God calls the shots. God will get his glory. The universe revolves around God. God does not revolve around you. And I love you so much, but I have to let you know, God is first and foremost about God. God is first and foremost about his glory. Why? Because he's God. You were created to worship him. You were created to bow to him. You were created to live your life for him. And yet we argue with God. Well, I didn't really like the car you gave me. I could have gotten a better. Are you for real? Who do we think that we are? And yet God grants us access to him. and says, I will be your father and you're my child and you can come to me and ask for anything. In fact, bring your petitions before me. Come boldly before my throne. Engage me. Whew. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Question, am I too comfortable? This hits us right here, middle America. Am I too comfortable? Here's the meaning. Are, we, are, my daily orderings of, are the daily orderings of my life centered around being better off here, here, as in this side of eternity. Does most, I mean, let's just be honest. Does does most of the time of my day surround me being better off here or being better off there? Hmm? Which one? It's here. Listen, when he says here that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, listen to me, brother, sister, There should be a longing in your soul to see Jesus Christ return. There should be a longing in your heart to see God restore what was broken. There should be a longing and a a palpable desire to see God set back correctly what has been made crooked. And, and it's amazing because, to be honest with you, if I'm just being very baseline honest, like, like I'm not too concerned with whether or not Jesus returns today or tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Because in the end, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of all right. I mean, I'm kind of good. I got, a, I got a decent house. I, I love my wife, and my kids are obedient at least 50% of the time. I mean, it's all right. I got a, lot of bit of, a little bit of money in the bank, could always use more, but you know, it's like, whatever. I enjoy my job. So if Jesus doesn't come back, then like, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. It's not a, where is the longing? Where is the hunger? Where is the thirst for Christ to return? Let's be honest. We hunger and thirst for things of this world, not the things of the world that is to come. 
We hunger and thirst for things now. We hunger and thirst for things here now. We want stuff here and now. Even though our life is like this and eternity is like really long. We want to cram it all in here. No, no, I got to have this. I got to get this and I got to get. And we will just completely forget that this life is not about this life. And Jesus says you are, or scripture says you are aliens. You're sojourners. Your life is like a mist. It's, it's breathed out and it is, it is over. Greater than that, how, how is it that Romans 8.22 talks about the fact that all of creation groans for the return of Christ? Not me. Nature, the birds and the trees and the whales and the water and the molecules and the atoms and the sun are groaning for their creator to return and to set things back to the way they're originally intended to be. Everything groans for the glory of God except me. Because I'm good. I'm good. Next. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Question. Here's the question. Am I actually compassionate? Am I actually compassionate? Does my heart break for the brokenness in this world? Am I moved to compassion for those around me? Now, this is much deeper than we even have time to get into today, but suffice it to say, this goes well beyond delivering food to a, a food shelter. This goes far beyond cleaning up trash on a road that we adopted as a church. This goes, this goes well beyond giving somebody money on the corner. Uh, yes, those are compassionate acts. Yes, you should be doing those things. That's not the question, right? But to be a person who is merciful, merciful is to be a person who, who extends mercy and the grace of God to others. I mean, quite frankly, how is it that we wrestle with forgiveness? Hmm? Can I ask you? Why is it that we wrestle with forgiveness? How can somebody who has been redeemed and forgiven wrestle with forgiveness? And yet we do, don't we? We do. How can we have experienced such forgiveness and grace in our lives and yet so, so uh, hold back forgiveness and grace from others? Everyone. Some of you need to forgive your ex-wife. Some of you need to forgive your ex-husband. Some of you need to forgive that person who robbed you. Some of you need to forgive that person who stole from you, who broke your heart, who did this. Some of you need to forgive your father, your mother, your grandfather, your uncle, that person. I don't know, but I'm telling you this. If you have been redeemed, if Jesus has given you grace, unmerited, undeserved, how can we not offer that to other people? Now, here's the problem. I wish it stopped there, but it doesn't. Jesus takes it even further. He takes it even further. And in verse 44, he says that not only am I supposed to forgive people, but I'm supposed to love people who persecute me. I'm supposed to love my enemies. I'm so supposed to show mercy and grace towards them. See, it's one thing to forgive somebody that you love or once loved, okay? It's another thing to love, be merciful, and show grace to somebody who wants you dead. Like, this is a little much. Is it? Is it? You know, it's interesting to think about enemies. Scripture called me an enemy of God. 
There was a day and a time when you and I were both enemies of God. We had not accepted Christ. And it's amazing, Romans says that while I was yet sinning, which means I was an enemy of God, while I was yet an enemy of God, God demonstrated his love. God demonstrated his mercy. God demonstrated his grace in sending Jesus Christ into a world of enemies that would crucify him, that would kill him. And then Jesus would rise again to offer forgiveness. And yet they would scoff at him, laugh in his face. I was an enemy of God, and God sent Jesus for me. How can I not, in turn, love those that want to do me harm? Yet again, this is not something I can do. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not that good. I'm not. And when I watch the news and I see clips and videos of horrendous acts done around the world, some in our town, some in our city, some in our country and around the world, my heart breaks. But I'm going to be honest with you, my heart is filled with rage and anger, a lot of times hatred. I'm just being honest. Man, that's too honest. And so I know that this is not something I can do on my own. It is a work the Holy Spirit must do in me. So it's, 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 it's only by the Holy Spirit that we could ever feel that way. Let's keep going. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Question, am I pure in heart? <laughs> no deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. Let's be honest. How often are our hearts impure? Now, we like to say, well, not that often. I'm here at church. You know, I raise my hands in worship. Yeah, it's really sobering to look at statistics of churched versus unchurched. It's just very sobering. The rate of divorce inside the church is equal and even exceeding the rate of divorce outside the church. The statistics of, of men caught up in pornography is the same whether you're in church or out of church. We're divisive, we gossip. We slander. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, all too often, our hearts are impure. Our hearts are all too often impure. Let me just remind you that religious activity doesn't make up for an impure heart. And I think that's why sometimes we come to church, just guilt. Well, I haven't been there for a while. I've done a lot of bad stuff. Better go. Better get there. Got that old Catholic guilt on me. I better go to church. I better get there. I mean, just being honest, right? And yet it's funny, it's not funny, but it's interesting because no amount of religion can cure an impure heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only the working of the Holy Spirit can do that. That's it. And the fact of the matter is you could have just become a convert to cultural Christianity and cultural Christianity believes that if you do enough of the spiritual stuff over here, it will make up for that sin, sin stuff that is over there. Dot your religious I's and cross, cross your religious T's and the amount of, of porn that you watched on your phone last week will be totally negated. No, no, not the case. The only way that I can become pure in heart is when I own my sin for what it is and repent of my sin because of what it has done and beg God to purify my heart on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of who I am. That is it. 
The only way that we can realize, the only way that we can get to a place where we have a pure heart is when we recognize that we have an impure heart. We cannot do that on our own. It's interesting. Jesus has this conversation with people in Scripture, and we laugh at it because it's so ridiculous, but we do the same thing. We put on the appearance. We put on the smile. We show up to church. Man, 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 how many times do you don't even have to say, like, you, you, this is you, okay? Because I just know. You know why? Because I've gone to church my whole life. You, you know some of the worst drives in my life are on the way to church with my family. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Some of like, no, I don't. I don't. Could you please inform me? People yelling and cussing and punching and screaming and kicking. You pull into the, the lot and your dad's like, everybody shut up. We're at church now. And you're like, and you get out and you're like, hey, blessed, have a blessed day, brother. Hey, hey, God bless you, you know. And then you get in the car and you're just punching the snot out of your brother. You know what I mean? What? Yeah. And that's not what Christ calls us to do. He says that we're like whitewashed tombs. He calls them that. He says, you're beautiful on the outside, but inside there's nothing but death and decay. He says, you're like somebody who washes the cup on the outside, but doesn't wash the inside, which by the way, is as somebody who has a, a, a couple kids who are young, that's disgusting. You're picked up a glass and it looks clean. You're like, cool. And take a drink. You're like, I don't remember putting cereal in here. You know, it's gross. And what does it matter if the outside looks good if the inside is Dead. Next, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Question, do I bring peace? i got to burn through these last couple to get us in time. Do I bring peace? Simply put, do I exude the presence and the personhood of Jesus Christ in, in any and all situations? How many of us know that there is no true peace apart from Jesus? Amen? So that means I cannot be okay living in a world where Jesus is not being proclaimed at all times. Okay, I want to say this so that you hear me, okay? So I'm going to say it in a way that I pray you hear me, okay? I share the gospel with people not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a disciple of Christ, okay? I know you think that it's my job to share Jesus because I'm a pastor, and it's not. It's my job to share Jesus because I'm a follower of Christ. You and I share the same calling. There's a calling that, that predates pastor, and it's follower of Christ. So let me ask you, if we're to be peacemakers, if we're to be a people that take the peace of Jesus everywhere we go, speak peace and in, in every situation, spread the gospel. Just let me ask you this. When is the last time you shared Jesus with somebody? Hmm? When is the last time you led somebody to Christ? When? Why are you not doing that? Why? Well, well, because that's, that's your job. No, it's yours and it's mine. But not because I'm a pastor, because I'm a Christian. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Who is Jesus speaking to? Normal people. (laughs) Normal people. It's not a great suggestion. It is a great commissioning. Last week, we were able to commission a church that's planting Pastor Jason Church in the Wild up in Westerville, and we were able to commission them. We said, go, go and do amazing things. In the same way, Jesus is saying, Christian, go. How can we call ourselves followers of Christ? And Jesus says, you will be a peacemaker. And yet we don't talk about Jesus. Going, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Question Is there any persecution in my life because of Jesus? Is there any persecution in my life because of Jesus? Meaning this, Jesus tells us that we should expect for the world to hate us. In a kind of a humorous verse, the disciples show up to Jesus and, like, Jesus, something crazy is going on. And Jesus, like, What's going on, guys? What's going on, fellas? People don't like us. And they're just like shocked, like, what do we do? People don't like us. And Jesus says, well, of course, guys, of course they don't like you. They hate, they hate me. And by proxy, they're going to hate you. They hated me first, though. So when you feel that, we just understand they, they hated me first. But don't worry, because I have overcome the world. I have power over this world. I have authority over this world. Let me ask you, are you taking a stand for any type of truth that is bringing persecution your way. It's not that we long for persecution. It's just the fact that if you stand for any type of truth, you are going to get things thrown at you. I'll, I'll tell you what. If you stand for life, if you take a stand for unborn children, you will be persecuted. If you take a stand for a biblical approach to marriage and family, you will be persecuted. Is this making sense? Is there any persecution in your life? I mean, let's go even further than that. Is there any difference about you and I? I mean, if you were to line up my life and somebody else's life who doesn't know Christ, is there a difference? I mean, apart from the fact that I come to church on Sunday, go to a small group, is there any difference? Is there? We watch the same stuff. We read the same stuff. We go do the same stuff. For many of you, drink the same stuff, smoke the same stuff, talk the same way, date the same way. What is different about you? If you can do all those things. See, I am convinced that for years growing up, I had culturally bought into a religious salvation. And I didn't relationally know Jesus. And I was at every church service. I was at every prayer meeting, business meeting. I could quote scripture to you. I could whatever. I even invite my friends to Jesus. I didn't invite my friends to church and tell them about how much Jesus loved them. And I'm convinced that I don't really think I actually knew Jesus. Because internally, there was nothing different about me. Internally, I wasn't convicted over sin. There's nothing really different about me at all. If that's the case, how then can I call myself a follower of Christ? Now, you might look at these and say, I can't do all these things. What? I can't do this? Is this for real? And I would say, 
you are exactly right. You cannot and neither can I. Which is what is so amazing about the grace of God. Jesus demands that we surrender everything to him. And when we do, when we come before him, we say, God, I cannot do this. I cannot achieve this. God says, okay, that's all I needed to hear. You believe in me, you give me your life, I'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he begins to shape and change our desires, shape and change our heart. Isaiah says that God reaches in and pulls out the heart of stone and he puts in a beautiful new heart of flesh, one that is compliant and soft. I have to ask you, are you just going through the motions? Is there even a chance that one day you could stand before Jesus and say, Lord, I went to church, I prayed, I read the Bible, I did this, I gave money to that. Jesus, I know who you are. And Jesus says, depart from me. You worker of lawlessness, I do not know who you are. Yeah, you're familiar with me, but you don't love me. You never have. I want us just to bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. I am asking, as I have been asking all weekend, for the Holy Spirit to convict us. No amount of good preaching or bad preaching or whatever can ever communicate conviction the way the Holy Spirit can. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can change you. So regardless of how good or bad I preach today or whether you agree or disagree, the fact of the matter is you don't need me for this message. Just open up to the book of Matthew chapter five and read it for yourself and ask, does my life align with these? Am I meek? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I compassionate? Do I care about being a peacemaker? See, the thing is, Jesus is really saying here, do any of these look like you? Because they should. Progressively, more and more each day. See, today I should be more of a peacemaker than I was yesterday because I'm growing in sanctification. Today I should be longing more than I did yesterday for the kingdom of heaven. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond. Even though I understand that words are insufficient to save us and works are inadequate to save us, it does have to start with surrender. It does. I'm gonna give you an opportunity. I'm gonna pray. That's a prayer that you're familiar with. But I'm gonna challenge you this morning. Don't you dare utter a word before our God if you are not willing to lay down your life. Jesus will not be your get out of hell free card. Jesus will not just be your savior. He must be your Lord. And unless, and unless you are willing to bend your knee to him as Lord, you cannot have him as Savior. But if you're willing to do both, would you pray with me? It's yourself, Jesus. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. 
I'm lost and I'm in need of you, Lord. I know that there's nothing I can do to save myself. No amount of money I could give. No amount of prayers I could pray. The only thing that can save me is you. I give you my life. I lay it down. Give me a new heart. Give me a new mind. Make me a new creation. Take away my guilt. Take away my shame. I believe that you're the son of God. She died and rose for me. Send your spirit to fill me. Sanctify me. Create a place in heaven for me. Thanks for listening to this message from Covenant Church. For more information on our ministries or to hear more messages just like this, visit us at covenantchurch.us.